Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Often, these books address specific genocides, or specific incidents, or specific people. Sometimes they focus more broadly on issues like prevention, on creating models of causation and prediction, or on issues related to the legacy and aftermath of mass violence. Today's podcast, though, is a little different. Today we're going to talk about the discipline of genocide studies itself, where it came from, the shape it has taken, what practitioners in the field should study, and in fact, what the goal of the field actually should be. The focus of our discussion will be a recent set of essays, edited by Ernesto Verdeja and Joyce Apsel, titled Genocide Matters, Ongoing Issues and Emerging Perspectives, published by Routledge Press. The book quite intentionally sets out to examine the field of genocide studies and the debates that have emerged within it in the past few years. Ernesto and Joyce have been able to call upon some of the most influential thinkers in the field, and the result is a short but extraordinarily rich and thought-provoking book, one that will, and already has, created discussion and debate across the field. I can think of no better compliment for a book like this. I'm excited to have a chance to talk with one of the editors, Ernesto Verdeja, about the book. So, Ernesto, thanks for joining us, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start um, just by giving you a chance to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in studying mass violence. Uh, well, uh, you know, I'm a political theorist by training, um, and I originally was very interested in actually questions of post-violence. So I was interested in questions of justice and reconciliation reparations in societies that have been uh, experiencing a history of mass violence or have been working their way out of it. And a lot of this actually comes from my own personal history. I'm an American citizen, but I grew up in South America. My family's Cuban originally, so there's a lot of history of political violence mm-hmm. in that context. And having lived in Argentina in junior high and in Caracas, Venezuela for high school, I saw a lot of violence or at least political conflict and discord firsthand um, as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, and during those times, during those experiences, I, I thought a lot about why is it that certain groups of people can't get along and why is it or how is it that some groups feel that they can justify the use of violence and repression against others. And this was particularly salient for me uh, growing up in Argentina. So I lived in Argentina shortly after the end of the junta period and during the mm-hmm. first democratic period. So a lot of it comes out of kind of personal experiences like that, which I suspect is the case for, for most people who work in this field one way or another. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can start um, just by asking you to say something about where the field of genocide studies began and why it began. That's a really good question. And um, unsurprisingly, it's, the answer is fraught. There's, there's some degree of disagreement <laughs> here, and I suspect that'll be the case with most of my answers. There'll always be people who could disagree. But I think in the most general sense, uh, genocide studies and the way that we understand the field today as a research area really emerged in the 19... 19- 80s, more or less, late 70s, mostly in reaction or in response to an earlier set of research interests, which was around the Holocaust. So there was a lot of work that had been done on the Holocaust post-World War II, unsurprisingly, and this dealt with studying anything from the experiences of victims and survivors to trying to understand uh, the motivations of perpetrators to trying to understand the role of totalitarianism and authoritarianism. And a lot of that earlier week or work uh, which focused specifically on the Holocaust, tended to treat the Holocaust as a very kind of unique historical event, which of course in many respects it is, undoubtedly. 
But over time, there were a number of other scholars who became interested in other areas, other instances of mass violence, and they were interested in trying to understand what were the similarities or differences with the Holocaust or with one another, with these other cases of mass violence. And that really started taking off, um, again, really in the 1970s, more or less, 1980s. Now, this isn't to say that there hadn't been any thinking about comparative work, that is, genocide studies as mm -hmm. such, rather than Holocaust research. The, um, the, the man who coined the term genocide, Raphael Lemkin, actually wrote a really important treatise in the 1940s talking about many instances of the annihilation of peoples. And it wasn't only about the treatment of victims under, under the yoke of Nazi Germany, but it went back to antiquity. So there's always been a kind of interest uh, in that respect. But in fact, what has happened or what happened historically was that there were these kind of different channels of research on mass violence. So that genocide studies really only began emerging a little bit later when people started focusing on these other cases and started trying to compare them to the Holocaust. How, how then... I should I, I should take a moment to remind listeners if if, if you're new to the show we uh, earlier this year did a, a special two part series on uh, on Lemkin and so you can go back and hear the interviews with uh, Steve Jacobs and Donnelly Fries about their edited uh, versions of of Lemkin's writings but how how does this origin of the field how does that how did that I guess I should start with shape the agenda of genocide studies well that's you know that's a bit tricky. Um, in some respects, it, it partly depends on one, how one thinks about the Holocaust in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of the earlier work on the Holocaust uh, focused, on the one hand, on survivors and victims, so kind of the, the mm -hmm. extermination camps, the concentration camps, and the experiences that people had in those, in those places. Uh, and then a little bit later on the focus on massacres in the fields in Eastern Europe, etc. So part of it was focusing on uh, victims and survivors, and part of it also focused on the machinery of killing. Uh, the totalitarian state and also the role of perpetrators, such as the SS and maybe the role of the army and, and other units like this. And over time, what happened, I think, is that there was an opening um, in Holocaust research that started trying to take the Holocaust less as a complete whole, as a complete entity, and started trying to think about the differences within the Holocaust. So why is it that certain, uh, certain forms of domination, repression, and, and killing developed in one way, for instance, in France or in Western Europe versus in Eastern Europe or Southern Europe. What explained this kind of variation? And that opening really gave um, a kind of a theoretical or a kind of scholarly opening to thinking more comparatively about the Holocaust. So trying to think about these different dynamics of violence mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe and, and World War II against the Soviets on the Eastern Front and the treatment of Jews and others there versus the treatment of victims groups in the West. As this started happening, uh, at the same time, there was uh, a growing body of literature and a growing number of scholars who became interested in some other cases. One of the most important was the Armenian Genocide, carried out by the Ottoman Empire during World War I. Uh, we are actually living in the centenary of, of the beginning of World War I this year, of course. Next year starts what's kind of conventionally known as the beginning, hmm. the 100th, 100th anniversary of the beginning of the Armenian Genocide. And really in the late 70s and, and 1980s, there was more and more work being done on the Armenian Genocide. Now, this has always been very difficult, I would say, until about 10-ish years ago or so. Mm -hmm. uh, these days, the denial of the Armenian Genocide is not as common as it used to be. Um, but for a very long period, for a number of decades there, there was a lot of denial that this had even happened. And so a lot of scholars working on the Ar Armenian Genocide took the Holocaust as a yardstick, as a way of showing 
well, look, the Armenian case had a lot of similarities, some differences to the Holocaust. And that was really one of the most, or one of the first important steps at creating genocide studies as a comparative field as such hmm. uh, versus just focusing on the Holocaust. And then, of course, later on the Cambodian genocide and, and many other cases were folded into this. So why did you and Joyce feel that, that now was the appropriate moment to engage in this kind of self-conscious reflection about the state and direction of genocide studies? Um, I think this is a, a really interesting period of time in, in research on this phenomenon. Uh, since about the 1990s, there's been an enormous growth in comparative work on the study of genocide. Some of this comes out directly from the genocides in Rwanda and in Bosnia-Herzegovina of the mid-1990s when more and more people became aware of those cases and then felt that something had to be done about this. This is all post-Cold War, of course. This is mm-hmm. Cold War ends. There's um, a new vocabulary, a new language of human rights and the, the importance and sanctity of human rights and the protection of human rights. And suddenly these atrocities are occurring in different parts of the world. And when this happened, um, when, when the genocides in Rwanda and Bosnia happened, it drew not only scholars to the study of mass violence and also genocide, but it also drew the interest of a lot of policymakers and advocacy groups. And the 1990s really witnessed the growth of the international non-governmental organization movement, what we colloquially know as the NGOs. These are basically mm-hmm. human rights and other advocacy groups around the world. So what this basically means is that the 1990s saw an enormous growth both in research but also in advocacy work on the study of genocide, be it understanding the causes of genocide or the prevention and detection of genocide. And that enormous growth in research continued throughout the early part of the 21st century over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. But as this has happened, um, while there have been a number of important advances in our understanding of genocide, and I think also some really important policy advances, some really important so-called lessons learned, that is, things that we know that could probably work in stopping genocide, real practical knowledge. While all of this has happened, um, it's only relatively recently that scholars have started kind of exploring and asking themselves, well, what are some of the basic assumptions inside the field? What are some of the assumptions that we have about, for instance, what are the causes of genocide or how does it differ from other forms of mass violence like uh, uh, non-intentional large-scale death like starvation sometimes? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it isn't. How does it relate to civil war? How does it relate to counterinsurgency? Uh, policies of states, etc. So Joyce and I felt that we were at a moment where it would be worthwhile to take a moment and think a little bit about some of these assumptions in the field. Where are we? What do we know? But what do we not know? What are the points of contention? And what we decided to do was uh, we asked some of our colleagues at the Institute of the St- for the Study of Genocide, the ISG, which is based in New mm-hmm. York. Both Joyce and I are on the boards of this organization, and it includes a number of pretty well-known scholars in this area. And we put together um, a small workshop over a few days at Notre Dame in 2011 uh, here at the university. And we got some people together and we asked them to think a little about what the big questions are. What I mean by big questions are kind of these big methodological theoretical questions, kind of taking a step back and ask ourselves, where are we? Where can we go? What needs to be covered and what's already kind of settled? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's basically the genesis of this project. This is by no means the only project like it. I think there have been a number of other scholars who have been very interested in re-examining some of the assumptions of the field and trying to figure out where to go forth. Uh, So I see this project as kind of coming at the same time as some of these other books and venues and Mm -hmm. and symposia Mm -hmm. that have been put together. 
So, so then, I guess the easy next question is, having sat down uh, at, at, and, and ch- talked with each other about this, what did you all identify as some of the really critical assumptions that needed to be re-examined or questions that still needed to be answered or, or, or whatever other kind of topics that you thought needed to be addressed? Well, I think the first thing I'll say is that we didn't all agree. <laughs> so what I have to say reflects perhaps some of my yep. own you know, particular mm-hmm. interests, both as a scholar and also just as an advocate, someone who's involved in human rights efforts. Um, I suspect there are a lot of other things that people would add or perhaps they would even change the priorities around. Mm-hmm. But for the purpose of this kind of project and what we were doing here and, and, again, examining some of the basic assumptions of the field, I think a few things came to light. Um, one was... And this is something that I think a lot of scholars have been concerned about for a long time. One was a recognition that there are a number of different definitions of genocide um, in the research field. And this comes out of a general um, dissatisfaction with the official UN definition, which is the definition that's, that's legally binding, both in the UN Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. This is the famous UN Convention from the late 40s. And also the definition of genocide used in the International Criminal Court statute, as well as some other international tribunals. So there's a particular definition there that was hammered out um, through political negotiations in the 1940s. And it's what we've got. And it's great for legal purposes. You need a good, tight legal definition. But what has happened is that the definition itself has a number of blind spots. Um, And this has led over a number of decades for scholars to essentially develop and stylize their own definitions because they're trying to capture this particular phenomena that isn't quite, it isn't quite captured in the legal definition. Mm-hmm. So what this means is the following. It means that um, a lot of researchers, a lot of research today, a lot of scholarship today actually uh, has a lot of different definitions that are being used and it makes it hard to compare sometimes these causal models. And you know, if you think about it, the causal modeling stuff, this is a little bit insider baseball, a little bit technical, mm-hmm. but it has a practical dimension to it. Um, we as scholars are interested in developing theories on the causes of genocide and the patterns and processes of genocidal violence, not only for the purpose of understanding it, because mm-hmm. it's something that needs to be understood, but also for the purpose of prevention in the future and also to inform policy in a more sophisticated way. But if we have a lot of different models that are kind of explaining slightly different outcomes, it's a little hard to kind of compare them to one another. Mm-hmm. So, so one interest um, or one point of contention and point of discussion was trying to figure out, look, you know, what do we really know given that we have a lot of different accounts that aren't always using the same definitions or explaining something slightly different? So this is kind of related to this issue of causal modeling. I'll, I'll put it in that language as kind of the technical language, but I think that should be pretty uh, straightforward. Um, Some of the other things that we we thought about more generally was really trying to be um, a bit more critical or at least a bit more reflective about the boundaries of genocide studies. Uh, Genocide studies developed in such a way that scholars were interested only in studying a relatively well-known set of genocide cases in the 20th century, sometimes some historical cases as well. Mm -hmm. So I think for me and for a number of other people um, of my generation of scholars, uh, we've really tried to to push for an understanding of genocide as a form of political violence and embedding research on genocide in the broader research on political mm-hmm. violence. So this goes back to something I said a little bit earlier, which is, you know, how is it that genocide is similar to but also differs from 
civil war or international war counterinsurgency yeah. mm-hmm. or um, a whole set of other types of violent phenomena. And I think that's something that's going on right now, but it's not well figured out yet. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the problems with scholarship is that as scholars, we often work in silos, so to speak. You know, we, we kind of we do our own thing. We know people just like us, and we don't necessarily know in as much detail and depth work being done in kind of similar areas that are a couple of degrees mm-hmm. removed. So part of the, this project was uh, also reflecting a little about what the boundaries of genocide studies are and how we can include research from other areas, but also inform that research. Um, a few other points I think that were, were quite relevant uh, that kind of came up in these discussions was the importance of reflecting a little bit more on the relationship between research and pedagogy. Um, mm-hmm. My colleague, Joyce Apsel, my co-editor, has been heavily involved in teaching and pedagogy on genocide for many, many, many years now. Mm-hmm. And while there's a lot of teaching that goes on, I mean, a lot of students in the United States and in Canada read Anne Frank and perhaps Ali Wiesel and, and, and whatnot, uh, it's not, the, the pedagogy part hasn't really been systematically explored. So how can we make sure that what we're teaching has the effect of actually mm-hmm. promoting you know, good values and, and trying to mm-hmm. not only... I mean, one doesn't want to terrorize children, of course, um, but one wants them to understand these deep ethical questions uh, that are part of our world. So pedagogy was an, another important element. And I guess one of the, one of the last points I'll, I'll mention, there, there were a number of other questions here that, that arose, but one of the last points was thinking about the relationship between genocide and mass atrocities on the one hand and practical policy questions mm-hmm. of prevention and also intervention. Uh, my uh, colleague, Paul Williams, who contributed a piece to this volume, uh, is a really well-known scholar on UN peacekeeping and these types of mm-hmm. questions. So these are some of the areas, I think, where genocide research has been going now for a while. And one way to think of it is that it's very centrifugal. It's kind of shooting off mm-hmm. in many directions, much more so than it was 15 or 20 years ago. I think a more positive way to think of it, which is how I see it, is that it's actually becoming enriched. Um, it's mm-hmm. exploring a lot of different questions, but it's also bringing in younger generations of scholars, uh, and, and they bring new questions to the table. Well, let's, let's kind of unpack some of those um, issues that, that you discussed. And, and, and one, of, one of the things I noticed was the kind of language that you used. And this, this is discussed implicitly in some of the essays, explicitly by a few of the authors, that Genocide studies is predominantly a field populated by social scientists. Is that a is that a fair statement in your view? And what are the kind of consequences of that? Yeah, so I think um, I think that's I think that's true. It, it or it has been at different points. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the research on the Holocaust to kind of take this as a point of comparison yeah. was uh, heavily dominated by historians. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, like the pioneering work of Raoul Hilberg, who was a political scientist, by a political scientist who had a kind of a historian sensibility. So a real appreciation of detail um, and nuance. Mm-hmm. And whereas a lot of work on the Holocaust uh, was done by historians or by philosophers who were asking these big questions about evil and responsibility, you know, modernity and these types of issues. Uh, a lot of the work in genocide studies, I think it's true that it's been or at least in some of his earlier generations, was dominated by, by social scientists. And by social scientists, I have in mind sociologists, political scientists mm-hmm. in particular, um, much less so anthropologists, yeah. uh, to some extent psychologists, mostly social psychologists. And with 
social with uh, social scientists being such an important part of genocide studies, this means that there was uh, a natural gravitation towards comparison mm-hmm. and a natural gravitation towards generalization. And what I mean by generalization is this: uh, social scientists like to look for general patterns, so they like to figure out, well, okay, what do these different cases have in common, and what do these cases have that differ from, between one another? A historian. And, and here I'm generalizing as a social scientist. I'm general. um, a historian uh, is often a bit more reticent to kind of make that, that point. Uh, historians, because they deal so much more in detail and in nuance, are likely to say, look, you know, we really need to understand the, the very detailed elements, the very specific characteristics of a particular phenomena. And when you start comparing and generalizing too much and creating categories, as social scientists are often likely to do, uh, you miss a lot of the richness and a lot of the important elements. So what this means basically is that when social scientists play an important role in genocide studies, there's much more comparative work that's being done. Mm-hmm. Um, there's much more categorization, trying to think about different categories of violence and how they, how they may be similar or different from one another. Uh, but it also means that um, at least in some, of, in some of the research that you, uh, you end up producing research that reflects less kind of mastery of one particular case and much more mastery of the nature of comparison. Um, there is a benefit to doing this, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it's like anything else in life, there's, there are trade-offs. So the, so the domination of social scientists has meant that there's much that, that it's kind of driven this kind of comparative um, element of research in a way that wasn't typical of the Holocaust in earlier generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one... So, so as they do so, and as they try to compare and generalize, what, that, that, of course, drives this question of definition, right. which is critical to social scientists. Um, and one of the implications of that is not just a methodological one, but in some sense an ethical one, right? What is the sure. canon of genocides, and how, what, how is inclusion into that ca- canon determined? Can you say a little bit, of, and, and this comes up in a number of the essays in the book, so I guess I... I'd ask you to say a little bit about that issue and maybe about how some of the authors have tried to treat that, that, that in your book, tried to treat that question. Yeah, well, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this comes up across many of the chapters, but a, a couple of the authors, such as Alex Hinton and uh, Donald Bloxham, deal with this, this question head on. Um, you know, I, I think you, you put it quite nicely when you said that this question of uh, comparison and generalization has both an ethical component and a methodological component. Um, the ethical component is basically this, just to kind of put it in the most generic sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ethical component is whether in comparing different instances of genocide or different genocidal phenomena, whether we risk trivializing some cases or others, or inversely, whether we risk creating hierarchies of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a particular question for those of us who are scholars of genocide studies because we're also just human beings and we're, we're yeah. concerned with these questions and we, we don't want this to happen naturally. So this is different, for instance, uh, when you're dealing with other types of political phenomena. Sometimes creating hierarchies, there's less at stake in doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, but with genocide, naturally, this is extremely problematic. And in fact, you can see some of this even in, in some of the recent debates um, over the conflict between Israel and Gaza, over whether mm-hmm. Gaza was genocidal or not. So this has been kind of popping up in the media a lot. Um, so there's a lot at stake in these questions. Some scholars have argued that while it's, it's naturally valuable and important to compare different cases of genocide, 
that by doing so, we risk trivializing the um, Holocaust, which yeah. uh, has historically, as I mentioned earlier, been kind of the yardstick which was a systematic continent-wide process of extermination of the Jewish people, in addition to the targeting of millions of others of people, uh, such as the Roman Sinti, colloquially known as the Gypsies, but really Roman Sinti is the proper term. Um, so a lot of groups were targeted in in the Nazi Holocaust or in, in the Nazi violence, um, but the Jewish Holocaust has been taken as a kind of the sine qua non or the kind of the the um, the main case of genocide by which other cases mm-hmm. were studied, and. The issue here basically is whether in comparing other cases to the Holocaust, we are comparing for the purpose of historical understanding and sociological understanding. So trying to figure out, you know, are there causes that are similar across cases? Did people react in the same ways? What are the politics of memory, et cetera? Or are we actually um, making ethical comparisons? Are we saying, for instance, that because of the scale of the Holocaust, because of um, the, the the scope of the Holocaust, then in some ways it is worse. It is more evil. It represents a particular understanding of evil in in the modern condition that differs from other cases of mass violence, which of course human history is littered with mass violence. So Mm -hmm. that's not novel. Uh, (laughs) So, so that, that's where a lot of this debate has hinged on the ethical question. Uh, some of my some of the contributors, such as Donald Bloxham, who has written a very important book on the Holocaust as well as on the Armenian Genocide, among a number of other texts. Um, Bloxham is interesting, I think, because as a historian, he's also something of a comparativist, or he has a sensitivity to comparison. So he, as someone who um, has thought a lot about in what ways is the Holocaust comparable to other cases, and in what ways is it unique. Uh, and his book on on um, on the Holocaust. Uh, actually generated a very big debate among genocide scholars over kind of its its understanding of the place of the, the genocide against Europe's Jews. Uh, I think I can speak for him to some extent. You know, one can mm-hmm. encourage people to go read the book. You don't have to buy it. Uh-huh. Go to the library. You know, <laughs> just go get to the library if you want. Check it out. Um, you know, I think someone like Bloxham is uh, – is interested in trying to kind of balance both the unique elements, but also the points of comparison. Um, and again, this is partly a generational thing. I think that scholars of his generation, because they came up within the genocide studies area, rather than earlier generations who kind of came in through the Holocaust, kind of research on the Holocaust as such, there was already kind of an interest with this younger group of scholars. There was an interest in comparison by just, just uh, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's this kind of ethical uniqueness question. Alex Hinton has also talked a lot about the importance of comparison um, and also really being uh, vigilant about the boundaries or borders that we can create around particular cases or even around genocide studies as such. So uh, Hinton has, has really advocated for the importance of always keeping those borders somewhat porous. So one can be very rigorous as a scholar, but one has to be careful about what's being left out in terms of what's also being left in. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the moral question there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do we risk creating hierarchies of suffering? Uh, the methodological question, I think, uh, is, a, is a bit different, though it's obviously connected. I've already touched on it to some extent. Yeah. But the methodological question, in the end, it's basically um, it's a question of whether there are regular patterns, regular dynamics, regular conditions across many cases that would help us not only understand historical cases, but 
possibly understand the likelihood of future cases. So we can kind of see these things as they're coming. Now, there's a divide here between scholarship and policy. And I can say more about that a little bit later if you'd like. Uh, but the point is the comparative approach has a natural affinity towards preventive policy because the idea is that you know what to look for if you can identify what those conditions were in the past. You, you touched on um, the issue of Holocaust and genocide education. And I want to use that as, as, as a way to approach this issue of to what degree genocide studies is its own thing and to what degree it's integrated into these broader uh, fields of study that, that, that you addressed earlier. Uh, because, in fact, as you said, there's, there's, Joyce has done wonderful work helping people to, to think through the issues of, of teaching the gen, genocide studies. There's a fairly robust, at least in my judgment, robust set of institutional efforts to help teachers both at the college level and high school level to, to address the Holocaust. There's not really, at least in my judgment, a similar kind of um, set of institutions who do that for genocide studies, with one exception. Um, to what degree are the ho- Holocaust studies and genocide studies, to what, how do they interact? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a fantastic question. Again, you know, what's interesting about a lot of these issues is that um, the history is important, right? Yeah. So they're not simply things that can kind of be resolved intellectually. It's like, okay, well, we do mm-hmm. this rather than this, and these are the intellectual justifications for it. But rather, there are just particular histories or institutional histories to these things. You're absolutely correct that there are plenty of resources for people who want to teach about the Holocaust, either to um, junior high and high school students or mm-hmm. at the college level. The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has some great resources available for this, Mm -hmm. as do a number of other institutions. Um, The number of universities have centers that Mm -hmm. are centers uh, uh, for Holocaust research and Holocaust teaching. Um, I think part of what's happened is that historically many of these centers on different campuses around the country, uh, they evolved out of contributions and advocacy work of survivors of the Holocaust, who lived in the United States, and they wanted these experiences to be remembered um, for future generations so that people could make sure that this didn't happen again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a number of these centers that focus on the Holocaust all over the country, um, from the East Coast to the West Coast. And historically, they've focused on a number of different dimensions of the Holocaust, and they've also provided a lot of curricular support for teachers who wanted to, to offer classes, mm-hmm. figure out what to assign on these questions. In the past... 10-ish years or so, a number of these different um, centers have expanded their work a little bit and reached out and tried to think a little about how to include in their curricula other cases of mass violence, mm-hmm. other cases of genocidal violence. Um, I can give you one example. I mean, there, there are a number of different examples. Mm-hmm. Alex Hinton, of course, um, runs a center yeah. on genocide and human rights research at uh, Rutgers University at Newark. Um, that's probably one of the better established ones, probably one of the better mm-hmm. ones. But there are a number of other programs around the country who have kind of been exploring this comparative perspective. And another example is what's going on at Salem State University right now hmm. up in Massachusetts. They've had, um, they have a Holocaust center there, which is really great. It's run by really fantastic um, scholars. And they've been interested in also bringing in just as speakers, as guest speakers for their students, bringing in people who work on other cases or people who are kind of much more comparative, or work on other questions that are at least one degree removed from the Holocaust. And this is basically to complement the really important work that they're doing teaching about the Holocaust there. So it's not a substitution, it's a complement to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's typical of what's going on around the country in different ways. Um, but that's at the university level. Yeah. Um, 
at the high school, junior high level, it's a little bit different because a lot of this is, is also informed by state legislation, by, by state legislatures that pass policies on educational content and curricula. So there have been some significant debates, for instance, over whether there should be any recognition of the Armenian genocide in some states. Massachusetts has had big debates over this, whether their textbooks and their classes should call it a genocide as such, uh, which, just to be clear, it was, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's something I think the majority of scholars, like the, 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 there's a scholarly consensus on that. Um, mm-hmm. But for political reasons, it's, it's been a, a, a long, difficult um, road yeah. to get recognition for that. So those debates are a little bit trickier. Um, and to say that they're trickier, though, isn't to say that there haven't been significant advances. There are more and more uh, high school courses on violence, for instance, that might talk about the Holocaust, but might also talk about Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Or might even include a little bit on what's happening in Darfur uh, and other places around the world. And that's not too surprising. I think young people today also have a particular awareness of what's going on in the world. They're interested in it, but they don't exactly know what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. So there's an interest there for learning about these things, especially kind of contemporary cases. So there's an audience for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, I think you're absolutely right to say that there is historically a, d- a division here between um, teaching about the Holocaust that was pretty well-funded and well-developed, whereas teaching on other cases has been kind of one-offs in different schools. And it's usually supported by one particular faculty member, be it in college or in high school, mm-hmm. junior high. That's changing, but we're not quite there yet. You, you talk about, or you, you mentioned the the one of the driving uh, forces behind this, this institutionalization of Holocaust research was this issue of memorialization. <laughs> we've we've talked about prevention, and now memorialization. So, and I know I'm going to set you down into the middle of a minefield here and abandon you, but I'm I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> always glad to serve. Uh, what is genocide studies for? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there's three ways of thinking about it, at least. Okay. There, there are many other, perhaps there are a number of other ways mm-hmm. we could think about it. Um, there are, there is scholarship and there are people in genocide studies who uh, have historically or have looked at historical cases and we could see them um, to use the term that Donald Bloxham uses in this volume um, as engaged in kind of commemorative work. So one does research on past cases as a way of bearing witness to the suffering of victims of the past, commemorates their experiences. It also reaffirms their human dignity. Um, That's important without a doubt. A lot of the work on the Holocaust is, has this kind of commemorative dimension. And by the way, I should say that, to, to call this commemorative is not to say that it's not rigorous scholarship, but rather that it's scholarship that's driven by a very explicit ethical commitment. Okay? So that's commemorative element there. And that research is also tied sometimes to much more kind of uh, public commemorative events. So remembering the Holocaust, uh, having museums, having days of remembrance, days of commemoration, etc. So there, there, there are those types of elements that are kind of mm-hmm. part of genocide studies. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it an objective of genocide studies, but it's certainly something that motivates a lot of genocide scholars. So there's a kind of commemorative element. Um, another one is also what Bloxham refers to as kind of the analytical dimension, which is to treat these phenomena not only as instances of evil, kind of great ethical wrongs, but also as social phenomena that have to be analyzed and understood using all of the techniques and all of the skills and methods that we have at our disposal as scholars. 
And by scholars, I don't mean only people in offices kind of thinking about these things, but, you know, people who are doing interviews in the field and, and, and mm-hmm. people who are doing research on the ground, uh, anthropologists, et cetera. I mean, scholarship is, is very capacious in this respect, mm-hmm. but it's analytical in that respect. Um, and I think there are a number of, of scholars who are drawn to genocide studies because they see it as a research area. They're, they're, they're drawn to it for moral and ethical reasons as well. But they also see it as a research area, comparable to other areas of research. Mm-hmm. This can get tricky very, very fast, because obviously research on, on, on genocide has to meet the same scholarly expectations and the same rigor as any other area of research. But there's a lot at stake, because we're talking about human beings and the suffering of, of human beings. And you know, I teach at a peace institute, so my ethical commitments are pretty – I mean, that's part mm-hmm. of the title. So they're, they're pretty apparent. Um, and I think that our scholarship should also speak to, to some of these, these ethical questions as well, while still remaining scholarship. Um, so there's the commemorative stuff. There's the analytical dimension, uh, which some scholars kind of feel that genocide studies should be primarily analytical or driven in that, in that way. Um, and then thirdly, and this isn't uh, completely separate, but it points in a slightly different direction, is kind of much more policy-oriented research. Yeah. Uh, so less focus on um, commemorative, focusing on the past, less focused on research for the sake of research, which is kind of what I mean by the analytical category, mm-hmm. and more focused on research that can inform practical policy. Uh, there's a lot of really important work that's been done in, I would say, the past 10-ish, 10-plus years, more or less, mm-hmm. that has tried to get what we know from the research community and present it in such a way that policymakers can use it in some way. And I'm more than happy to talk more about that if you'd like. Mm-hmm. But these are kind of three different ways that, that the genocide studies community um, points. Uh, you know, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a field that should be a big tent. I think it should include scholars who pursue all these different things because they're all valuable in and of themselves. Um, but particularly the, for lack of a better term, kind of the commemorative versus analytical divide has been a really profound division in, in the field. And so has the preventive policy stuff versus the analytical dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, some people feel that we should be much more focused on policy and kind of changing the world and being advocates. And others feel that that's obviously important, but there's an important space for research as, as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And the argument in, from this latter position, from the analytical perspective, is that without good research, we end up producing lousy policy. Uh, I could give examples of that um, without – yeah, I could give examples of that. Um, or at least of what someone from that perspective would argue that, uh, sure. why you need good research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, that, that's you know, a major point of contention. And, and I should say you know, when, I, when I say that these are points of contention or disagreement, it's not to say that these disagreements are necessarily unproductive. Um, mm-hmm. These are productive disagreements because, again, it gets back to this question that I mentioned earlier, which is about reexamining your own assumptions, your own biases mm-hmm. in the field. So when you're confronted with these types of issues, you have to ask yourself, well, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? How does it contribute to something? Yeah. And what should it be contributing to? I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, the analytical, commemorative, mm-hmm. and then policy dimensions are perhaps three different ways of thinking of what the mm-hmm. goal of genocide studies should be. Um, I don't think there's one single goal. I think that would be a problematic way to look at it. And and, and this is maybe the right time then to, to point out that the two of your chapters, uh, two of the chapters in the book, uh, deal with aspects of mass violence that maybe don't 
fall into the traditional canon or definition of, of genocide. The one, one uh, excellent essay on uh, rape um, and the other on genocide by attrition. Right. Both of which are somewhat less methodological and some more survey in nature than some of the other chapters, but still, um, what? Why did you all decide to uh, include these chapters, and what does that say, if anything, about your own conclusions about what the canon should include? Yeah. Okay. So, so um, a, a couple of things. Uh, thanks for highlighting those those two important chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the chapter on genocide by attrition, so kind of genocide mm-hmm. over time uh, by Sherry Rosenberg and by Everita Selina, I think is a really important chapter because yeah. it forces us, reminds us that we need to think a bit more broadly than how we often do, which is we normally think of genocide as mass killing, as direct mm-hmm. killing, right? So if you see a lot of massacres and it seems to be kind of intentional and part of a plan, it might be genocidal. Um, but in fact, these things can unfold, unfold over a long period of time. Now, scholars who have worked on the treatment of indigenous peoples know this. They'll tell you, yeah, obviously, that's, that's, that's what happened in, in settler societies, and colonial societies. It's the treatment of indigenous peoples in much of North America, um, in Australia, and New Zealand, etc. Uh, it was genocide through attrition. And yet, some of those insights haven't really been brought into kind of the core cases of genocide research, nor have they really, I think, in a satisfactory way, informed the way we think about policy and the way we think about prevention. Um, because for many policymakers and also for many people involved in prosecutions and kind of the legal world that deal with human rights violations, uh, this, this slow genocide through attrition, through famine, through the rejection of um, – Healthcare and food, and start you know through the use of starvation, etc., is seen as something qualitatively different from direct mass killing, even though the consequences are the same. It's just kind of drawn out. So, the chapter on genocide by attrition is a way of uh, once again trying to raise questions about the boundary of genocide studies, yeah. and encourage scholars, researchers, to think about. All of these other research areas that have dealt with famine, that have dealt with slow processes of, of destruction, um, that isn't sometimes brought into the, the canon of genocide studies. Uh, again, there's a lot of important work that's been done over the past 10-ish years, kind of going in this direction. But that chapter in particular was an attempt at trying to bring together a number of different cases and saying, mm-hmm. look, there's a, this is a lot more common than you might think, even in the so-called canonical cases like the Holocaust mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, uh, the case on sexual, or the chapter on sexual violence and rape and genocide um, by Roger Smith is also a very important piece, I think, because um, you know for a long period of time, sexual violence and sexual assault was, in, in the context of war and mass violence, was seen as an excess, as excessive. Mm-hmm. So you had something like legitimate warfare or even genocide, which is, of course, by definition, illegitimate. Um, And then you would have this other kind of phenomenon that was done by crazies or was done by people who were kind of morally um, corrupted, etc. And what we know, and yet it hasn't gotten out as much as it should, but what we know is that sexual violence, and and particularly the domination of women, but also of men, um, that sexual violence is a constitutive part of contemporary organized warfare and of genocide. And it's been there for a long period of time. And so by including this gender dimension, I think it's a way of trying to get genocide studies scholars and researchers in this field to take really seriously 
um, how these kind of cross-cutting cleavages, such as gender, can can help us understand similarities and differences between genocide and other forms of violence. This gender dimension is really, really important. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, it was seen kind of as its own thing. Uh, my own feeling is that the study of gender should be at the center of, of uh, research on genocide, at least when one is talking about the dynamic, the causes of violence and the experiences of, of victims. Obviously, there's much more to genocide studies than just the direct experiences of victims yeah. and perpetrators. There are a lot of other questions. Um, but so this is a way, again, uh, much like the, the chapter on genocide by attrition, of um, kind of raising questions about the boundaries of the field. So your own essay is about transitional justice, and we could talk for another hour or two or not, but, um, but we don't have time for that. But I would ask you, um, how does the issue of transitional justice fit into a book about genocide studies? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So since I'm, the, I'm one of the co-editors, I, I, I got <laughs> to put it in. Um, so there's that. Uh, you, you know, it fits in like this. Um, I've been talking a lot uh, about thinking about the boundaries of genocide studies, how it connects to other fields, but also how it differs from other fields. One of the developments in genocide studies, and you see this at the conferences, at the, at the major um, conferences, you see this in a lot of the publications and the major journals. One of the things that you see is a really um, a real strong interest in thinking about how societies reckon with genocidal violence. And similar forms of violence. So there's a lot of work that's been done in the genocide studies community on Rwanda and the yeah. what are known as Gachacha trials, which are kind of um, semi-indigenous but not really quite indigenous forms of um, of justice. These justice mechanisms. There's a lot of work that's been done on the Nuremberg trials after World War II. Uh, there's a lot of interest now in um, the special hybrid tribunal, the UN hybrid tribunal in Cambodia, to deal with the perpetrators of the Cambodian genocide, some of the extraordinary chambers of the courts of Cambodia. And so there's a lot of interest in trials, in prosecutions, and also in um, focusing on victims, on reparations, possibly on developing truth commissions, etc., for these societies that have been so heavily traumatized. And yet, what has struck me is that the research in the genocide studies community just focuses on those genocide cases. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always engage, at least the scholars who work on this particular topic, don't engage in any systematic fashion with this enormous research, um, both theoretical scholarly research and also practical research, that has been done on so-called transitional justice, which is what we're talking about here. This is kind of justice during the period of transitioning out of genocide, mass violence, or mass repression into something else. It's known as transitional justice. So my chapter was, was um, an attempt at trying to encourage scholars to, well, first of all, giving them a sense of kind of what this field looks like. Um, I've done a lot of work on political reconciliation and trials and truth commissions. I wrote a book on that. Uh, trying to give them a sense of what that looks like, but also encouraging them to look at this broader array of cases because the problem is that if one only focuses on a handful of cases and tries to generalize lessons out of those, be it Rwanda, Cambodia, and the Holocaust, you might end up drawing the wrong lessons. Because there might be other things that are kind of going on here that you would be aware of if you had studied many other cases, if you had looked at the developments in other cases. Um, So what might have been considered a failure in Nuremberg, a success in Nuremberg, might actually have been driven by something that wasn't unique to Nuremberg, but actually we can corroborate its importance by looking at all these other cases. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, I don't don't know if that's... Mm -hmm. A little too general. No, but no, that's fine. You know, the, the point in, in this chapter is um, 
to give genocide scholars a sense of what this whole world of trials and prosecutions and truth commissions, what it really looks like beyond the handful of genocide cases that we often study. Because uh, it's very, very rich. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when I put it in this way, I don't mean to imply that there is something like genocide scholars who never are, are not aware of this other research. Yeah. They may to some extent. Um, but again, this is a kind of a way at, at strengthening some of these relationships, I would hope, in any ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I've seen these developments a lot just in, in the past couple of conferences, uh, scholarly conferences on genocide research. You, you see more younger scholars as well as some very prominent, well-established scholars kind of bringing in insights from these other fields uh, in transitional justice. Well, we're, we're getting close to the time where we need to wrap up. Let, let me close with a, a, a couple broader kind of summative questions. And one is, is, is just to say, so, so you sat with this book, I'm going to guess, since this is the way with most books, for a year or two. Are there a couple kind of key insights that emerged from you in this process that have really shaped your thinking about the field? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that's, there's several things that, that I think came out of this project. Um, one is greater humility. Uh, about what we know and don't know, um, and an awareness that there are a lot of really uh, important questions that we just either don't have the information on how to answer them, or we don't even quite know how to pose the question. Um, mm. Some of these are questions that go back a long time, which is how do we make sense of this kind of evil? Right? These are, these are you know, these, these are deep ethical and moral questions, and they don't go yeah. away. There's a reason why they keep coming up over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there, there are some questions like that. But another question I think that kind of came up over and over again in reading this was um, trying to figure out what the limitations are to knowledge. The, the limitations that we have as not only as scholars, but just as regular people, right? Um, how can we make sense of these types of events? I mean, we have very sophisticated theoretical accounts of the motivations of perpetrators, you know, experiences of victims, etc. But there's always a, a gap here. There's this kind of constitutive gap. You just you just can't understand it, um, and that's deeply troubling. It's deeply deeply troubling, uh, and it's it's one of these places where um, a lot of our assumptions about predictability and uniformity in the world, kind of you know, that we can understand patterns in, in the world and we can we can make sense of the world in some way, yeah. um, that these things are called into question. Uh, it, it raises questions about the intelligibility of the world, the moral intelligibility mm -hmm. of the world. And so, you know, when you're editing and going through a, a book like this, it comes up over and over again. Mm -hmm. But it comes up not only as a researcher, it comes up as a teacher. Uh, yeah. I teach on this regularly. In fact, I'm teaching an undergraduate version this semester, I teach a doctoral version of this class, or a graduate version of this class. Mm -hmm. um, and the students, quite understandably, raise this question all the time. It's like, well, how do you, you know, I mean, we, we read a lot, we, we spend 15 or 14 weeks reading about this stuff, but how do we actually make sense of it? And I, I don't know. Um, this book raises these kinds of questions, at least it did for me, over and over again. Um, I will say, though, uh, one of the things that, in a kind of more positive way, I suppose, uh, <laughs> is uh, that I saw it as um, a small but, you know, nevertheless useful contribution to uh, trying to get scholars in our field to think a little bit more about um, the field itself and about their place in it and what they're trying to do with their work. 
um, to take a step back and and ask these kinds of um, these kinds of methodological and, and theoretical and conceptual questions that are so valuable, and recognizing that sometimes those types of questions are fraught that they're political and moral questions as well. You can see this in some of the debates. I mean, some of the some of the chapters are they're part of a debate. They're part of an ongoing yeah. debate. It's quite evident. Um, so that's actually been really kind of interesting to me to, to, to see those debates in the chapters and to try to think a little about kind of my own feelings about some of these debates. Um, so those are some of the things that came up. Um, lastly, I would just state that uh, kind of going back to, to the gender question, uh, I would hope that issues of gender and, and other issues kind of about structural violence, for instance, uh, that's characterized in the chapter on attrition that these types of questions get more and more attention and they become more centered in the study of genocide. So I hope that this volume can contribute a little bit to that. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful summation. And you'll forgive me if I take us on a little bit of a side trail sure. with, with one of your uh, comments, because yeah, I, I teach comparative genocide. I teach the Holocaust, but at a small liberal arts college where that's a small portion of what I'm able to teach rather than right. the core of what I teach. Those are the hardest classes for me to teach. They require the most thinking about the students and in the classroom. And it's not a content issue. It's a, and and this is something that was never taught, at least to me in graduate school. It is a it is an emotional and ethical and social question of how you help students wrestle with these issues. Yep. So how, how do you help students wrestle with these issues? Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting you asked that. I um, was just involved in a workshop uh, over in the UK a few months ago where we talked about, about this question. It was really kind of more teaching oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a number of, of scholars kind of in this area in genocide studies as well as some people a couple of degrees removed from it, where we raised these questions. We had a really frank um, three-day workshop on this. We we're trying to figure it out and trying to learn from each other. And uh, I, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I mean, on the one hand, when you teach about these issues, you, you're trying to do a few things, right? One is you're trying to just inform them and, and help them understand the world. You're trying to just kind of impart knowledge. And that's important because, uh, to the extent that they have a grounding in that, they can be better citizens, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be more reflective as citizens if they understand kind of what has happened in the past and what to look for in, in, in the future. Um, but part of it is just kind of imparting knowledge. I mean, it's something we all do as teachers, as, as, mm-hmm. as, a, yeah, as teachers, mm-hmm. as professors. Um, but to do it in such a way that on the one hand conveys the gravity and the importance of the topic without, on the other hand, uh, falling into a kind of pornographic voyeurism, yeah, right. I and mean, that's the challenge. So you don't, you know, it's it's tricky because you don't want to spend a, an a, enormous amount of time on those types of issues, mm-hmm. unless of course you're qualified to do that and and you've you've developed the course in that particular way. I have colleagues who teach entire semesters on trauma. Um, and they're remarkable courses, uh, but but it's it's a tricky it's a fine line because you don't simply want students to come away horrified. Horror yeah. is not enough, right? In fact, mm-hmm. it's, it might not even be the best thing to get across. Um, so my experience is uh, has been that one has to create a lot of space for students to actually be able to speak about what they're thinking about and to be able to kind of work these things out in their own. 
um, and do it in such a way that they feel like it's a safe place to talk about it. Uh, while at the same time, of course, naturally engage with the with the research and the readings and all this. It's yeah. it's a very difficult balance. It's it's really quite different from most of the other courses I teach. And I used to teach at a liberal arts college, and I taught this course, so I, I completely understand what you're saying. It was there was this course, and then there were all the other courses I taught. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think one of the crucial things is, you know, to to try to give students a space where they can reflect and work through what their own thoughts are on these questions, and also so they can feel. Um, not a false or superficial sense of empowerment that they can just simply go and change the world, but mm-hmm. nevertheless that there are concrete things that they can do. Yeah. Um, the world may not be changed very rapidly. It's not going to happen like that, but there are concrete steps. And, and one of them is just being informed and being an engaged citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, this contributes to that goal in a small way. Though, of mm-hmm. course, it's, it's a college course, right? Well, mm-hmm. Teachers, first and foremost. Um, so I'm not so sure that that's... that's a succinct, a succinct an answer. To one um, but that's partly because these things are so hard to figure out and you figure them out throughout the yeah. semester. Every, every, every course has its yeah. own rhythm to it. So. Yeah. It's one of the few times, or it's one of the few places in my teaching career where I consistently have to deal with, with students crying, right? Yeah. which is never taught in graduate school. And yeah, but we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, I just like a couple very quick, concluding questions and one is and I'm going to put you on the spot and see how your kind of instant recall is okay um, if you if for people who are interested in kind of learning about this what's your favorite book what's the one book you recommend to people about gen that's in the field of genocide studies oh gosh that's a tough question uh, long silence while you think and I feel you know, I would I would recommend um, Primo Levi probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's 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 hard to pick someone. I, I think I think one should certainly read history and and should be aware of kind of the, the broader historical and political and, and social dynamics of genocide. Um, but if I were to recommend a book, and I'm, I'm often asked this, I usually go um, with Survival in Auschwitz by Primo Levi. Uh, I think it's, for me, it's, I, I still teach it. And um, it's one of the most powerful books. I think it has a very strong impact on people when they read it. Because uh, it gives them a sense of, not, it's, it's not only about the physical harms and the physical, physical suffering, but it's about the complete destruction of meaning such and how genocide is something that's so um, totalizing so overwhelming that it destroys your very not only moral compass but your sense of intelligibility how how you can make sense of the world and I think Primo Levi captures that very well Um, someone else is Charlotte Delbo who was also a survivor so Primo Levi and Charlotte Delbo were survivors of uh, the Holocaust Uh, these are just two examples they're both survivors Charlotte Delbo wrote some very powerful poetry um and I still think it's it's some of the most powerful powerful work I've read. Um, yeah. So that's where I would go. And a presumably easier question: What are you working on now? <laughs> um, <laughs> a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, different <laughs> things actually. Um, one is I'm working on uh, a project a project actually on compar- comparative genocide. Um, so trying to think a little about um, bringing back in. Uh, 
a study of kind of different social levels of how genocidal violence develops. So we have we have a lot of research that's been done on the role of leaders um, and kind of putting into place uh, policies of genocidal violence. There's a lot of really good work that's been done on, on kind of um, the role of leaders, basically, in doing these things. But what hasn't been examined in a systematic, comparative way is thinking about these different levels. What is the relationship, for instance, between the perpetrators on the ground and the leaders and how different groups of perpetrators, different actors at the so-called subnational level may react to different circumstances and thereby inform policy at the top. It's kind of more dynamic up and down approach. And I'm looking at this um, across a number of different cases. There's been a lot of work that's been done on specific cases. We know this well in the Holocaust, some extent in Rwanda, to some extent in Cambodia and some other places, but we don't really have a good um, systematic way of thinking about this across the board. And the idea behind that project, which is about the escalation and the diffusion of genocidal violence, but also what are the restraints to genocidal violence uh, mm-hmm. at this kind of subnational level? If that just makes sense, that's what the project is. Mm-hmm. The the the, um, the purpose of this is first of all to you know as, as a work of scholarship is to kind of get a better understanding of what these dynamics are, um, but it's also to give us a slightly more and hopefully to contribute to a more informed understanding of how this looks in practice. Mm. Uh, when we look at cases of ongoing mass atrocities, like what's happening in northern Iraq today or in Syria or in the Central African Republic or in South Sudan, there's so much going on at any given point, and it's so complex and so hard to, to fathom that I think sometimes policymakers um, and other observers will say, well, it just seems like mass killing in every direction. It's not genocidal mm. because it doesn't look like the Holocaust or it doesn't look like Rwanda. And in fact... What we know, looking at these cases historically, is that there were a lot of decisions that were made on the fly and that they helped inform the radicalization at the top. It went both ways. So I've been trying to think about, and I'm, I'm working on right now, a kind of a, a much more comparative theoretical model for that that can kind of make sense of these processes so it can inform mm-hmm. policy. Um, that's the main thing. Um, I've also been doing some work on uh, prevention efforts and um, early warning and risk assessment modeling which is kind of the, the fancy term for basically trying to figure out how to understand, predict probabilities of genocide and similar forms of violence in the short and midterm. Um, I will say for that project, uh, you know, uh, my own sense is that we should be less focused on preventing genocide as such, and we should be more focused on preventing mass atrocities, just mass, mm-hmm. mass violence. Um, when it gets to the point of genocide, it's very hard to stop. Um, so part of that project has been kind of trying to expand the scope of what we of what we're studying. And there are a lot of other scholars kind of working in this area, so I've been, I've been working with some of them. So those are the two main things. Well, they sound fascinating. I look forward to uh, hearing more about them, and hopefully at some point in the future you'll come back on the show and talk about them again. Great. Thank you very, very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all your time. It was wonderful, and uh, have a great remainder of that moment in time before the students show up and you have to go to the classroom again. Fair enough. Thank you, and, and like right. for you too. You've been listening to an interview with Ernesto Verdeja about the book Genocide Matters, Ongoing Issues and Emerging Perspectives, which he co-edited with Joyce Apsell. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I talk with Thomas Kuna about his book Belonging and Genocide, Hitler's Community, 1918-1945. to In the meantime, thanks for the download, and have a great month.